Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, phone, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Zaltzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael. Today we're going to talk about the issue of scheduled induced births, something that Columbus Regional Hospital stopped doing on December 1st. We have three guests with us in the studio. Uh, Dana Waters is the Executive Director of Women and Children's Services at IU Health Bloomington. Jeff Alberts is an IU Professor of Psychology and Research Scientist at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center Center Perinatal Institute. That's a long one, Jeff. And Mary Helen Ayers is here with us. She's a home birth midwife. She's been a a guest on the show a number of times before. So uh, we're happy to have our three guests, and you can join the program as well. By calling us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. And you can join in a live chat mm-hmm. by going to WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can also follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. So lots of ways to get uh, get in touch with us today. Welcome back. We missed you last week. Thanks. Yeah, I, was, I had the week off last week. It was great. But I listened to the show. It was great. It was, you guys did a great a lot job. Of fun. Yeah. So thanks, everybody, for being here with us. I wanted to, to just sort of open this up with a very general question about, you know, why is this an issue today? Dana, let's uh, go to you. What reason is, is this an issue? Well, we, across the country, we have seen an increase in early um, deliveries, early term deliveries of babies that are born before 39 weeks. And through the last 10 years, analyzing the rationale and the reasons for that, a lot of that reason has been because patients and physicians have scheduled inductions. In 2007, the Institute for Healthcare Improvement came out with a, a perinatal bundle project that hospitals could join if they wanted to, looking at this issue and how we could reduce the elective inductions. Fortunately, the physicians and nurses at IU Health Bloomington were on board early with that project. And so we started in 2007, and we're able to, the obstetricians all agreed that we would not do any elective inductions prior to 39 weeks. We, we do medical inductions. There's, that's the criteria. I want to be clear that people are understanding. If there's a maternal or fetal issue, that's categorized differently. Mm-hmm. But for elective inductions, we don't do them until after 39 weeks gestation. So why were people choosing to do this? It was just a matter of scheduling and wanting to make sure that everything was sort of in order? And I think it started with some misconception that 37 weeks was term. We called it term. We called it early term, but we said term is 37 to 42 weeks. That's a five-week spread. And there was misconception that 37 weeks was good, and 38 weeks was good, and 39 weeks was good, and 40 was good, and 41 was good, and all was good. But actually, they're not equal, and it depends on the baby. And so as, as we did these, as we saw these babies, and they'll, we'll explain as we go through the show, I'm sure, about the different developmental issues with babies and, and sucking problems babies have, we realized that, that it's not all created equal. And so the research was very clear that after 39 weeks, the outcomes with these babies were so much more improved. Mm-hmm. Now, Mary Helen, you work with uh, with. A lot of parents want to have their, their babies at home right. as a midwife. So this is, hasn't really been an issue for you, has it? Yeah, in many ways. I mean, you're right. I mean, this is in the context of my practice in the world that I spend most of my time in. This is a non-issue. Mm-hmm. I certainly deal with my share of women at the end of their pregnancies who are like, make me have this baby. <laughs> you know, nobody's really loving the way it feels to be, you know, to be 39 weeks, to be 41 weeks, and to know that it's close but you don't know how close it is. Mm-hmm. And to be in that position of um, really wanting to trust nature and trust the process of nature and to, you know, people who choose home birth, I mean, that's a reflection of their values. They value natural birth. They value what spontaneous labor is. And it's super wonderful mm-hmm. to see mm-hmm. research, you know, piling on, piling on like crazy in the last few years that also supports the, you know, what we see as many, many values of spontaneous labor, whether it's at 38 weeks, 40 mm-hmm. weeks, 41 mm-hmm. and a half weeks. So I think it's good preparation mm-hmm. for you as a parent not to know when the baby's coming because, <laughs> the, I mean, seriously, there is a surrendering of control of your well, life when I'm you so have a child. And I think that not knowing when the baby is coming is just the first step. It's I like, agree. Well, here we go. You know. Yeah. 
I mean, it's you, out of my hands now. Right. It's helpful if you can if you are able to conceive of the idea that you're parenting already mm-hmm. before your birth, and um, to you know, assuming again, as Dana said, that there aren't medical issues that are going to you know govern decisions. Assuming this is a healthy pregnancy, it's going well. You're doing your baby a tremendous favor. Mm-hmm. by just waiting on spontaneous labor, and then the rest of us need to do our job supporting that. Mm-hmm. And how often are you involved with a premature birth? Oh, you know, Does it happen often? In my, you know, a premature birth isn't a birth that's going to happen at home, so a yeah. premature birth, is, is that's going to be a transfer of care absolutely from me and then mm-hmm. to, you know, to a backup physician, and then I can stay on board as a doula and as a, you know, for personal support, and I do. Mm-hmm. But, so I, do not, I never see premature birth right. outside of the hospital. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know. Okay. Uh, now, Jeff's here with us, uh, Jeff Alberts, and I have to ask you, you know, how you made you've made sort of a transition. Um, those of you who may know Jeff, I, I, have you have you gotten over the title of the Rats in Space guy? No, I haven't. No, right, right. You're not right. helping, Bob. Right, sorry. <laughs> no, I, there's, I have another flight coming up right. in, in April. Right. So, so Jeff, uh, um, as an IU professor of psychology, has done a lot of work with with rats, but a lot of that work has been um, with like prenatal and birth with, with Perinatal, uh, perinatal, yeah, yeah, perinatal sorry. development. So, I, part of my lab, major part of it's been dedicated to understanding the sensory systems and the behavior and the physiology of late-term fetal rats and mm-hmm. the, the birth transitions. And so, how, how have you transitioned to Cincinnati? Then, what what are you doing there? What's there, I um, I was taken under two wings. I was taken under the, a medical wing by uh, my mentor. This was all structured in a in an NIH grant to be mentored in another field. So, I had this fellow actually who I met as a scientist on a space shuttle flight and we, we happened to make a scientific connection at that time. But it turns out and at the time he was actually the medical director of one of the NICUs, neonatal intensive care units at, uh, in Cincinnati. And I met him as a scientist. I knew he was a clinician as well and he's a, he's, it turns out to be a very, very um, good and well-respected one specializing in fetal skin which was is interesting to me. <laughs> and um, he became my mentor. He structured a medical program. I rounded with him and his colleagues and, and spent time with the residents. And then the other part of the program that he pointed me toward was to, uh, to spend significant time on the floor, bedside, where I was trained by a group of nurses who were certified in a particular method of observing and interpreting uh, the behavior of preemies. Mm-hmm. So I spent most of the babies in the NICU there, but not all are, are prematurely born. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I spent my time specializing in them. Mm-hmm. That's been phenomenal for me. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So you're you're splitting your time between the two places right now. Mm-hmm. Okay, mm-hmm. all right. Well, let me give our phone numbers again: eight five five zero eight one one eight seven seven two eight five nine three four eight. You can join a live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition or follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Jeff, what, from your perspective and observation and study, what important things happen between, let's say, let's call it 37 weeks to 42 weeks? Well, that's kind of a wide range, but... Well, when, when Mary Helen was speaking, I was, and you were talking about these sort of positive parenting mm-hmm. reasons for, for uh, seeing a term birth, I was thinking that, gosh, most of the babies that I know mm-hmm. are also sort of living evidence of, of, of why you want a term birth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, these, these I'll, I'll switch tracks in, in terms of affect, and these are beautiful, exciting, wonderful babies that are, in most cases, interacting with their, their moms and their dads. At least eventually, when they're mm-hmm. 24 weeks, 25 weeks, it's harder to see that. Yeah. But uh, but they're busy doing it. But these are, if you took look at these prematurely born babies, say the 36 to to 40 week babies, um, which many of us still consider to be prematurely born or, mm-hmm. or born early, um, they are often on, on ventilators. They need some of them will need significant respiratory support. They're GI systems are, are at risk, if not um, diseased, mm-hmm. and that's often the reason mm-hmm. that their their hearts are often incompletely developed, and they're, that's a real topic of attention. They're prone to um, to cerebral hemorrhages, um, which can be damaging to the brain. Um, they can't eat in, in some cases; that is, suck, suckle uh, effectively. So. There's a, a lot going on. So, yeah, a lot happens in those last few weeks then. I mean, one thing, you know, at 30, it takes till 37 full weeks to have just a suck, swallow, breathe reflex mm-hmm. fully functional. 
I mean, we all know anybody who does the birth, we know of 35 and 36 week babies that are born and they're just fine and they nurse great. Absolutely. But I mean, th- there's a real range of what you can see. But just if you look at data, what you'll see is mm-hmm. just very, very, very avoidable problems, especially around breastfeeding. For these babies that are born a little bit early, babies in utero at the end of pregnancy are gaining half a pound a week. And, and you know, the, their systems are functional, but that weight that they're gaining at the end, that's, the, that's what's going to keep them stable outside of their mother's body and allow them to make a simpler transition to simple breastfeeding. And that's hugely important for parents. It's You don't want to see a woman who cheerfully and, and in a somewhat uninformed way says, you know, I want to schedule my birth for X date because that's grandpa's birthday and that would just be so wonderful and let's just do that. And then, you know, she has an induction that may not even proceed to vaginal delivery because, you know, the impact on the C-section rate is huge in yes, connection huge. with these elective yeah. uh, with these elective inductions. And then, you know, and then it's so common to also have breastfeeding difficulties. And so something that seems so simple and fun turns into this just multiple layers of, uh, of avoidable complications, and that's, I think, what everyone's looking to get away from. Now, avoidable complications sounds like something the insurance companies would be very strongly against and not want to cover this kind of procedure. Do you want to speak to that? How are, how are insurance companies reacting to this if, if so many of the outcomes are not positive? I, I've certainly had the, the state waters. I have certainly yeah. uh, worked with insurance companies on statewide committees, so they're very well aware of this. Uh, in Texas recently, they Medicaid quit paying for under 39-week elective deliveries. So we will see that come. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, it will be the, the way of pay of performance for OB will be mm-hmm. lack of pay for mm-hmm. lack of of good performance. So it will come to Indiana at, at some point, I believe. So the insurance companies are well aware. The, in, the Indiana Hospital Association has put out uh, a recommendation to all hospitals not to do, to do any elective deliveries before 39 weeks. So it is uh, the standard within Indiana to not do this. And so it is coming through to all hospitals at this point. Mm-hmm. So, Well, when, the, uh, when Columbus uh, announced their decision, the, the regional administrator Margie Campbell. Yes, I know Margie. Yeah, mm-hmm. she talked uh, about this. And one of the things that she said, one of her quotes is that she talked about in that five-week period between 35 to 40 weeks, there's a tremendous amount of, quoting her now, tre- tremendous amount of brain development that occurs and also organ development that occurs mm-hmm. at yes. that time. When, when Mary Helen was talking about the problems with sucking, that's problems with brain development. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. It takes the brain and the respiratory system. You know, if your babies are really breathing very hard and fast, they aren't going to suck if, if their first priority is to get oxygen because their lungs are not fully developed. So all these pieces go together. Mm-hmm. And I love what you had to say about, about the gastrointestinal pieces because that is so important and people don't realize the significance to infants um, when, when they're not term. Let's, let's back up a little bit. I mean, how do we get to this point? Because, you know, every, we, we assume that, you know, every person who's giving birth is, wants the best for their child. And so how did, it, how did we get here where many people had the idea that, oh, you know, 37 weeks on, that's good? Well, I think a, a couple of things. I think that, uh, first of all, we had great outcomes with 37 weeks compared to 24, 25, 26. And they look big. They're over five pounds. They look some a thirty-seven week baby that is six pounds looks the same when you look at it initially as a forty-week baby that's six pounds. So they looked okay, but they're, that that doesn't make them equal. So mm-hmm. we have that, and I actually think epidurals have had an effect on it. Um, back thirty years ago, when epidural wasn't the standard, pitocin was not desired by most pregnant women because the word on the street was you're going to have a longer labor and it's going to hurt. So people, women, did not desire. Pitocin, and it was only used if necessary. But epidurals have shifted that so that it's a pain-free labor, and so that is not the issue that it was 30 years ago. So we have several different th- pieces that have come together that it has become a cultural norm to have this as an option when you're um, close to term. And so that's those have been some some pieces. I think I actually think it's, it's a social issue. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, and you can't you can't completely fault the practitioner who has a lot of patients to take care of um, in the medical system. And when a patient's walking in saying, "How long do I have to stay pregnant?" It's very easy to say, "Well, we can, you know, let's get you scheduled." I mean, it's 
I can't even conceive of what OBs go through. My my world is so different. I'm thinking about maybe three women in a month as opposed to like 12 in a weekend or something like that. And having some sort of control over when births are happening is a very human thing to want from the point of view of the practitioner. So I think the, there's a conversation that probably happens in prenatal appointments that just makes it super easy to get to that place. And again, it, it's taken a while for this data to, to trickle back. Mm. I mean, I, I think, you know, anecdotally, we've known, and someone like me is, who's, you know, as you know, I'm, I'm kind of a critic of all of this. I like, I'm a big fan of spontaneous labor, and I like to give it every chance we can before, you know, before turning to medical options. Um, it's understandable. It, and we live in a convenience-driven society. We schedule everything else. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I think birth is special, and it should remain as special as it actually is. But mm-hmm. um, it's very easy to ask for it to be different. You know, one of the statistics that I came across when I was preparing a little bit for the, for the program was that between 1996 and 2007, the, uh, the frequency of scheduled births went up 53%. Mm-hmm. 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 Uh, and I'm, I'm not exactly sure what was going on medically then, but a lot was going on, and I think there was more and more confidence and, and, and data to mm-hmm. support that, that, um, that the adults in this world, the physicians and the parents could work miracles. I mean, mm-hmm. could just do these kinds of things. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a sense of, of autonomy and authority and control. Like if there's anything wrong, they'll fix it? They can fix it, and, and we're in control. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. in fact, the biology mm-hmm. of birth, if you, if you were to say, you know, where, who's in control and mm-hmm. where's the, you know, what causes the birth and what does it start, it's a fetal <laughs> choice. Mm-hmm. And it's, a, it's an initial fetal control. So in, in a sense, um, Yes, that I'm looking at Mary Helen. Yeah. We're agreeing. Parenting goes on all during mm-hmm. the pregnancy, but the fact is that it's it's not just the parenting. I mean, the fetus is doing a lot and is doing a lot of regulation and a lot mm-hmm. of control. It's regulating the mother's physiology. Mm-hmm. It's regulating itself. And when it comes to birth, in, the, in among all mammals, not just mm-hmm. human beings, it's a fetal call. Mm-hmm. Yeah, waiting for that fetal trigger is is going to get you. A lo- there are a lot of benefits a lot. if parents can be better educated about that. And of course, you know, getting data on what's going on inside a fetus—that's like the latest. That's the last data you're going to get. That's hard data to get, but it is. It is well mm-hmm. much mm-hmm. better understood now, and it's why, you know, and it's why there's a variable variable length to pregnancies, and there is such a thing as a pregnancy that's gone on too long, just mm-hmm. like there's such a thing as you know serious prematurity, but the range of normal is quite great. And mm-hmm. counseling patients mm-hmm. to, you know, the expectant parents who, of course, are unbelievably keyed up. About, this is a little off topic, but how can you tell what are the signs that a pregnancy has gone on too long? Well, there's some, some biological markers that mm-hmm. physicians can do with ultrasound to take a look to see how much uh, amniotic fluid there is, whether they can watch the baby's breathing methods with the amniotic fluid. So there's there's tests they can do beyond 40 weeks to see uh, the well-being of the baby. Mm-hmm. And so they start doing those after 40 weeks. Mm-hmm. And if they see a decrease, and that, then at, after that, for with a decrease in, in that, then they will do a, a medical induction mm-hmm. because they're seeing that at the pregnancy. So there are things that we can do to, to reassure parents if, if their labor doesn't start spontaneously. Mm-hmm. If you want to join our program today, please call us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. Or you can join the live chat at uh, WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. Now, as we talk about this, and and I think, Mary Helen, you mentioned it's sort of a social issue in Mm -hmm. some ways. I mean, when I think of that, I think of, you know, this U.S. sort of desire to control everything. Is this a – and it's not really a very – uh, fun thing to look at, or, or but uh, is this a, is this a U.S. phenomenon, or is this something that happens in other developed countries? Well, it does happen in other developed countries. It is predominant here, but there are other countries, particularly I, I mean, Brazil, for instance. Oh, they Lord. like scheduled yeah. C-sections. Oh, right. <laughs> They've so, lost their faith in vaginal delivery in a big way in Brazil. In Brazil. Yeah. Yeah. Why, in Brazil. Why is that? I think well, that's the, you know, the bikini line. The, the, bikini, the bikini line. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the cosmetic <sighs> surgery capital of the world mm-hmm. as well. So I don't, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> so it, it, is, it is not only the United States, but certainly uh, volume of births. You know we're a large country, mm-hmm. um, and and how we do healthcare. This has been the, a big player for our mm-hmm. country. Yes. Mm-hmm. Boy, I learned a lot of stuff on this show. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Who knew about Brazil? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think. I, but Mary Helen made a good point too that you know when you're a, a 
a physician and you've got that many, many, many patients. I don't. Does anybody know what the average caseload is for a pedi- or an obstetrician? Well, the American College of OBGYN said that an obstetrician's practice, who's also doing full GYN, is 150 to 200 deliveries a year. Wow! And most of our obstetricians are in that category. Mm-hmm. Wow. Either individually or with their group, if they're mm-hmm. in a group. So that's we have about two thousand deliveries a year at IU Health Bloomington Hospital. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. now, one, one of the studies that uh, has been released recently was from Columbia University. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this one, but it talks about uh, researchers wanted to find out if carrying a pregnancy not just a full term but longer into the full term period made a difference in how kids performed in schools. And what they determined was it did slightly. They they talked about um, children who were born between 39 and 41 weeks uh, did slightly better on third grade math and reading exams than students who were born between 37 and 38 weeks. So, it's of course people study a lot of a lot of things, but that's just that's fascinating to me that mm-hmm. that that I guess the brain development does go on for those last couple of weeks. Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And continues, you know, very, you know, to a huge degree, you know, in the first couple of years and, you know, and onward. And I mean, onward. Yeah. yeah. I think science and medicine is as much art as it is science is what I meant to say. Yeah. Medicine yeah. is as yeah. much art as it is science. And so I guess I'm a little bit skeptical, too, when they say you are 37 weeks. Well, maybe you are, maybe not. <laughs> you know, I'm a, I'm a little skeptical about that. Mm-hmm. Oh, we have good technology for dating pregnancies. I mean, in my practice, it you know includes a really careful history from the woman that you take down, and then if it's not, if things if the pieces aren't coming together, then we you know first trimester ultrasound is actually yeah. very accurate. Beyond first trimester, you're, you're it's not very valuable. But mm. uh, and you know, but a first trimester ultrasound is as good as a careful menstrual history for getting a dating. So our date we have fewer dating problems than we used yeah. to. Yeah, that's absolutely. Good. Yeah, my my feeling in general is that biological development, just in general not just fetal development, but all biological development works, is timed by the interaction of, of countless parts. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. What, what moves development forward is how these parts interact. And it's, not, it's driven by those interactions, not by a clock. Mm-hmm. And that these things happen in what we call time. Mm-hmm. But, but the, the real time is the time of, of those interactions. And, um, and then when you are watching a, an infant, Especially, I think, especially the preemies, they have their own time, mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and the way I've been trained to see them is to abandon my adult sense of time and mm-hmm. and start to appreciate theirs. And there are rhythms and patterns of it. And I think the same thing is true with their, their the entire nine months of their development, and certainly in the last uh, you know, three or four or five weeks, mm-hmm. uh, when lots and lots of things are going on. Um, and we can see that after they're born, because the first nine months after. They're born. Kids develop differently. And so, I mean, it, it is that kids are on their own time frame. You're absolutely right. I love the way you put that. Yeah. And it's perfect. I mean, it's yeah. not, there isn't a, yeah. no. a time. There's a sequence that you want because right. of these interactions mm-hmm. for sure. But the actual clock time is almost irrelevant. The differences are okay. Mm-hmm. 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 Well, I mean, if you take that out to when they're older, you can line up, and, you know, line up uh, six, sixth graders and, you know, two of them will look like adults and two of them will look like children <laughs> and the other one will fall somewhere yeah. in yes. between. Yeah. Yeah. So, and they're yeah. all going to get to the adults. Yeah, they're all going to end up at the same place eventually, mm-hmm. but, you know, it's just the path that they're, each one of them right. is taking to get there. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, I, I get what you're saying. All right. We're going to take a short break. We're uh, talking with uh, Jeff Alberts, Dana Waters, and Mary Helen Ayers about um, – well, perinatal care and early induced births, something that Columbus Regional Hospital stopped doing on December 1st. And Bloomington Hospital actually stopped in 2007, mm-hmm. correct? Mm-hmm. So uh, you're listening to Noon Edition, and we'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game Musical Mini Quiz, and Play and Opera Reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at WFIU.org. 
And have you heard WFIU's news features? The WFIU News Team brings you expanded and in-depth reports on topics affecting South Central Indiana. Catch the Friday feature just after 8.30 during Morning Edition, just before Noon Edition, and at 5.45 during All Things Considered. They're also archived on our website, WFIU.org. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg from the Herald Times along with Mary Catherine Carmichael. And we're talking today with uh, three guests, Dana Waters, who's Executive Director of Women and Children's Services at IU Health Bloomington, Jeff Alberts, an IU professor of psychology and a research scientist at the Cincinnati Children's Hospital Medical Center Perinatal Institute, and Mary Helen Ayers, a home birth midwife. If you have questions or comments, please phone us at 855-0811 or 877-285-9348. The um, address for the live chat is wfiu.org slash noon edition. We have several different questions we want to start this half of the show with, and then we're going to get to to our first phone caller. But the first question is, uh, can we make a distinction between premature and early births? Dana? Yeah. <clears throat> yes. Um, Actually, for preterm or premature birth, it is 30 from pregnancy until 37 weeks gestation. In that category, from 34 to 37, we call that late preterm. And then term is considered from 37 to 41 weeks. And in the stage from 37 to 40 weeks, we call that early term. So I know it gets a little confusing with all the different names. Uh, and then beyond 41 weeks and six days, it is considered post-term or post-mature. You'll see both terminologies used based on what the research you're reading. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now, premature would be before the 34? Before 37 30, weeks. Before 37 yes. weeks. Okay. Yes. Okay. Did you have a... Oh. No, I don't. You don't have another question? I don't. Okay, let's go mm-hmm. to the phones then. Let's go to Valerie. Well, I do, but <laughs> <laughs> let's go to Valerie. Let's go to Valerie. Okay. Um, yeah, this is a little bit of a tangential question, but it has to do with not not simply the length of the gestation, but I guess what they call circadian rhythms and the signal between the fetus and the mother. Mm -hmm. I think you said earlier that in all mammals, it's a signal from the fetus that results in the spontaneous, you know, beginning of labor. And I've never given birth, but I've had a lot of experience raising horses. And it seems that almost all, like, I don't know what the research would show, but I'd say probably at least 90% of, of baby horses are born between the hours of, you know, 10 p.m. and dawn. So my question is, is there, you know, some sort of, uh, does the research show that there's any circadian rhythm in terms of the fetal signal in humans? And if there is, then what effect do you think disrupting that by inducing labor, say, at a better hour of the day, would have on the ultimate health of the of the baby of the newborn it's kind of a technical question sure, <laughs> sure. I, I haven't read any research on circadian I'm reading curious yeah. about Could this the fetus. i'll take my answer off the air okay. no, that's okay no it's okay Thanks, valerie well, valerie the fetuses um in all species that i know of have circadian rhythms and they um they can be set a variety of ways, but the, the most common ways we like to think about it is day-night rhythms. Mm-hmm. And late-term fetuses in a variety of species, including ones that are, are born with their eyes closed, um, many of those, and humans for sure, can actually detect light mm-hmm. through the abdominal, their mom's abdominal wall. And the, uh, the setting of those circadian rhythms by light is, uh, is just a biological reality. And that is undoubtedly part of the the story of how the the fetus's rhythm through its pituitary, through Mm -hmm. all the normal uh, Mm -hmm. brain controls, uh, get established. Mm -hmm. So they're there. And um, I'm going to look down toward the table to have people uh, speculate on how um, altering them or disrupting them or violating them with a... With an induction. I mean, from my perspective, I I don't know any research on the time of birth in, in relationship to the baby's circadian rib- mm-hmm. rhythm. I haven't seen any. Have you, Mary? I haven't, but, uh, you know, while, while we were listening to Valerie, I was thinking about Jeff's comment earlier that I, I think it's one of so many factors that are at play in a birth. I mean, my sure. ongoing interest in my work has to do with the fact that each birth is such a complex experience. And, you know, the baby 
gets the ball rolling when we're talking about spontaneous labor, but then that gets the mother's, you know, hormonal system mm-hmm. active. And then that's what's really at the core of uh, yeah. progress in labor. And, and But, it, you know, as we say that, we often we also have to acknowledge that what is going on with her hormonally exactly has a lot to do with the environment she's in, the way she's treated, who, how, mm-hmm. who talks to her, how she's spoken to. Women at the time when they have to be just their absolute strongest are s- completely simultaneously with that unbelievably vulnerable. And that's why mm-hmm. the, you know, the context in which birth happens, the atmosphere, who's in the room, what the room is like, these things that can sometimes feel like window dressing are actually important um, because they – whatever's going to let her – let go, feel safe. And that's going to be very different from woman to woman to woman. But that's what's going to help labor progress naturally. If we're not going to have to apply medical controls or artificial hormones, if we want it to unfold as simply as possible, we have to start with the woman and honor and respect her requests, regardless of our personal reaction to what those requests are. Well, Mary Helen, in, anecdotally, have you seen any... I mean, have you seen like most births at 7 a.m. versus? Oh, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, it's, if it doesn't finish in the middle of the night, it starts in the middle of the night. So <laughs> the older I get, the truer that seems. <laughs> um, labor loves the night. And uh-huh. I, I mean, it, that's something my clients hear from me. And, and the most common time to get a phone call that, you know, I think something is maybe happening is often, you know, after dinner, before uh-huh. bedtime. And my. You know, all things being simple, you know, my answer is usually the best way to get it, let it keep on happening is go to bed. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. You know, labor likes to sneak up on women in their sleep. Uh-huh. You know, getting the higher brain quiet and the lower brain active is usually, you know, a good friend to labor itself. Interesting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Our phone numbers again, 855-0811-877-285-9348. You can join the live chat, org slash noon edition. We had another question come in about um, induced labor. Would that, could that lead to a premature birth, like with a second child? Is there any any correlation between induced labor and what happens with the second birth? I'm not familiar with any research <clears throat> that mm-hmm. correlates those two. It's mm-hmm. definitely true. If you if you have a premature baby, yeah. if you if you give birth prematurely, you have a roughly fifty yes, percent chance of doing it again. I don't know. About spontaneously go into labor right. prematurely. They're We've really vilified induced labors here today, but there are times when that's appropriate. Let's talk Absolutely. about that a little bit. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are, of, of course there are, and that's not, you know, that's that's sort of off topic in a way. We're talking, you know, it's it's very easy to, to be critical of, you know, elective induction, which is exactly what it sounds like. It's like, who all is voting in this election? Probably not the baby, you know. So. But, yeah, there are a lot of reasons. And, you know, different practitioners have somewhat different approaches to how do we manage the risk in labor, we want to make it safe, mm-hmm. and th- we haven't come up with a set of perfect controls. You can't make it perfectly safe, and everyone's who works with birth is making this, you know, kind of impassioned best, you know, best effort possible to to help their patients or in home birth, our clients have a healthy baby. Mm-hmm. And the Joint Commission, which is a regulatory group for hospitals, they have about three pages of reasons why a medical induction of labor prior to 39 weeks are medically indicated. So, I mean, there are medical reasons. Sometimes the mother has uh, chronic hypertension and is progressing to become quite ill. Is that preeclampsia? Uh, well, it can be chronic or it can be preeclampsia. It can be gestational. That is, mm-hmm. yes, yes. So they either one that there can be those. There can be uh, placental issues where the placenta, the afterbirth, have implanted incorrectly, and the mother and baby are safer to have an early early birth. So there are, are medical indications mm-hmm. for it, and it's but it's they're clear, and the Joint Commission actually even says five percent of the time there may be an indication that isn't on that list. And in Bloomington, we have a double check before we do an induction of labor or a repeat cesarean section before. The physician's office schedules it, and then the charge nurse goes back and double-checks with that first ultrasound that mm-hmm. Mary Helen was talking about to make sure that there hasn't been uh, an error somewhere in, in between the communication. So we double-check that on our patients and look at, at it, and we look at it against the, the ICD-9 codes, the codes that the Joint Commission uses. And if our physicians find a case that aren't in those codes, we, we consult with the, a perinatologist. And a par- uh, the obstetrician is an expert. They go to undergrad, they go four years to medical school, then they go another four years to, to for residency. And so a perinatologist goes another three years for a fellowship. So they're the expert's expert. 
and they consult with it, the experts, experts, mm-hmm. perinatologists, and, and there are occasionally strange things out there. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, medical inductions are real. They're, they're, uh, they're valid, and, and certainly we, we don't want to impact those at all. Okay. Right. We've had something come in online. It says, uh, this is an email that uh, came in from one of our listeners, and it says, I wanted your panel's commentary on the role of practitioners' workloads and preferences on inductions. I had a scheduled induction beginning eight days past my due date without any indication of fetal distress. The only reason I was told was, quote-unquote, the baby's going to get too big. Uh, And by the way, the practitioner had lots of babies that were coming to term. My induction failed, and I had a C-section 42 hours later. My second child was born via normal vaginal delivery six days past his due date with a fairly short labor. I had to fight like heck to find a practitioner who would support my attempt to have a vaginal delivery with my second. The rise in inductions leads to more C-sections, not only for those pregnancies, but subsequent ones, Mm -hmm. since VBAC support in this country is horrible. Who wants to comment? <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly many places do not do VBACs, vaginal birth after cesarean, um, or what we call t- TOLACs, trial of labor after cesarean. Mm-hmm. Uh, at Bloomington, we do, do TOLACs and VBACs, and they're, they're screened by the physician for medical indication and appropriateness, and that's a, a decision made by the woman and the physician together. And so, and we have 11 different delivering physicians and a certified nurse midwife in Bloomington. So there are options for patients mm-hmm. when they need consultation with other physicians on, on an issue. I just want to say way to go for sticking it out and working for what you want. I mean, mm-hmm. some of this, it's easy to sort of doctor bash around this issue. Nobody's going to, nobody can give you an induction against your will. You have to be an active participant in decision-making during your pregnancy and late in pregnancy, there are better resources than ever for pregnant women. Um, I might suggest a wonderful book by a researcher named Hensi Goer, who, you know, when I was first uh, a student, uh, had a wonderful book called The Thinking Woman's Guide to Childbirth, because all she does is look at research and amass research and get it into, you know, just data. Everyone's looking for what are the best practices, mm-hmm. what is supported by research. We're all very swayed by what women want, but we can't, you know, our practices need to be supported if we can't do what women want, if it's actually not as safe. So looking at what the best data is, and Hensi Goer just has published a wonderful new book. My copy's on the way. I can't wait to have it. It's called Optimal Care in Childbirth. And if you're anyone is wanting to take data to a doctor and say, this is what I see, so do you have better data if you know, a patient wants something that her physician is, and is, and her physician is is suggesting something else. I mean, she has the right to kind of get to the bottom of what is actually the safest thing. So for this her. concept of the baby's getting too big, it's that's tricky. You know, that's that's manipulative. I, I hate to say that, but babies do get big. But the only test of a pelvis is the birth itself. I get worried about my clients who have big babies, but there's. The stories of women who were sectioned for what turned out to be an eight-pound baby and then pushed out a nine-pound baby with their V-back, those stories are legion, and it's that's a scary thing. It's scary to think about pushing out a baby. It's scary to think about pushing out a four-pound baby, much less an eight versus nine, and baby size is a factor. So that's a that's such an easy issue to scare women with, and, and it's not very fair. Late ultrasounds are without value for fetal weight estimates. I mean, they have some value, but their range of error is so great that it's not it's not what you want to be watching. Um, you're better off with the practitioner, the same practitioner, feeling and measuring, you know, week by week at the end. So you can make better, you know, hand estimates, which isn't a skill that a lot of physicians are still, you know, keeping up on, I have to say. I don't, I don't think. Um, and an induction, unless it's emergent because of severe medical need, needs to be a joint decision right. between the woman and her pr- practitioner. Mm-hmm. And so they, they need to talk about it. Mm-hmm. They really do. Mm-hmm. They really do. Women, I, I think women, women sometimes fail themselves in not asserting what they really want. Um, I've, I spent a lot of time talking to women who feel like they just sort of caved in the midst of that conversation and they have feelings about it. And that's, that's unfortunate. Um, it's good to do, your, do some independent research and go in prepared for a conversation. Yeah. One of the most beautiful things I, I think I, I get to watch a lot, with, uh, especially with one of the nurses that uh, is my tr- one of my trainers, mm-hmm. um, is when she is watching her talk to mothers, especially, but, but really to parents. Mm-hmm. And 
often in many, many different contexts, telling them that, uh, that the most important thing they can do at that point is to be their baby's advocate. Mm-hmm. That really starts mm-hmm. preterm. Pre- yeah. mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. it does. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Advocate. Yes. And, and what this, this caller, writer, was doing was being her, her child's yes. advocate. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think they need support and encouragement yeah. and rewards for doing it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. This, I, I feel I've seen, I've seen really good support for VBAC in this community. I mean, mm-hmm. it, it really needs to start with a woman. She really has to want her VBAC, mm-hmm. but there are. She has good choices, you know. Let me give our numbers again, 855-0811 in Bloomington, or if you're out of the Bloomington area, 877-285-9348. You can also join a live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition. Let's get back to our, our beginning topic today was that Columbus Regional is going to stop doing um, request mm-hmm. requested induced labors just as a convenience. Yes. Under 39 weeks. Under yeah. 39 yes. weeks. Thank you. Yes. Um, so this is a, a certainly a, a national trend. Bloomington oh, yes. already did it. Mm-hmm. How much? How long do you? I mean, do you think it's inevitable that all hospitals are going to say eh, we're not going to do that anymore? Um, yes, I think all hospitals will say it. I think either by um, consensus or by <coughs> mandate or by best care. I mean, for some, for whatever reason, it will happen. Um, I'm going to put a plug in here for women who still want an induced labor that as they make their decisions with their practitioner, that they, they look at different um, pathophysiological things that are going on with them. Mm-hmm. That there's something that we can do called a Bishop score. Mm-hmm. And that's something that the, the healthcare provider will do that will look at the how high the baby is, how the cervix prepared, uh, lots of different pieces. And by giving the, the woman the score, you can actually look up statistical data to see what you're – there's actually an app for that. So <laughs> look at your statistical data for the chance for a C-section because that's one of the things that's, that uh, – for the, the, the person who, who wrote in that, you know, she talked about having a C-section. And so if you're going to have an induction, look at all the pieces of information you can get. And that's one that um, we use at Bloomington mm-hmm. for inductions. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, the study that I, I quoted earlier from Columbia about uh, children born between 39 and 41 weeks um, did slightly better on third grade math and reading exams. Is there the potential for that to be a sort of misread by people who say, okay, if my kid is going to be a math genius, I need to keep <laughs> that kid you know, in utero for you know, 41 weeks? I, you know, I mean, that's not. I mean, that, that may be a little bit of a stretch, but I, you know, what it's looking like if you if we pull back and look at this, you know, take a kind of a bigger picture look. What it's looking like is more and more data is coming in to support practitioners being more and more hands off when you're dealing with healthy women. Like, let's let's promote spontaneous labor in time in, inside this time frame of 37 to 42 weeks, whenever we can. And the more we can promote, you know, spontaneous labors and letting babies initiate their process, that is bound to be good for babies. It'll be a long time before we have the data proving it, but it sure makes a lot of sense. And, you know, we have, you know, and there's a fair amount of data that's When did this shift from people, we used to hear about people scheduling their Mm -hmm. C-sections. Was that an issue of convenience or was that more medically indicated? Um, More for rescheduling a repeat cesarean section. Uh, we were doing them after 39 weeks at the mom's convenience. So it was scheduled at the mom's convenience at that time. And it's still after 39 weeks for a repeat mm-hmm. section at the mom's at the convenience of the mother um, with what's available on the schedule. So, yes, mm-hmm. they are scheduled that way. Um, yeah, let's see. We also asked about the, the t- other timing with the, the patients who when they choose to come in. Um, so often there are a lot of different things that are taking place in the whole family dynamics also. And so the mom's getting pressure from grandparents because this has become a grandparent norm. Uh, they, they want it done very quickly and fast at a certain time. So it, it is a, it's the whole family. It's the whole village, really, with this whole piece to support the mom <laughs> mm-hmm. through the pregnancy and through the delivery. Mm-hmm. So the pressure is from the mom, certainly, and, and, and certainly when I, had, when I was pregnant with my own kids, it was like, boy, whoever can come up with a seven-month full-term pregnancy will win all the money. Because, <laughs> you know, you're you're kind of over it. <laughs> yeah. but, um, 
but uh, but it's also that moms get good support. And so mm-hmm. often right now with the 20-somethings, um, their moms are working like me, 50, 60 hours a week, and we're not there to support them like mm-hmm. they need. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this is something that grandparents and siblings, we all need to be taking a part in supporting that mom. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This isn't like such a public health issue, too, um, as far as certainly supporting the, the parents and, and the mother, but also encouraging Um, as much full-term natural birth as possible. What kind of support, if any, do you get from um, government? I guess I'm thinking nationally because this is a national issue. Um, Are are you getting, are you seeing anything from from them? Well, um, the the Institute for Healthcare Improvement is a national organization, a not-for-profit national organization. Uh, We're not seeing anything nationally. Our patients, uh, the payer is Medicaid, and that's a state program. And that's 41% of the patients in Bloomington, 51% in Indiana. And other insurance payers, uh, they are – it's a measurement that they're looking at. We report – uh, some different quality measures and in, 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 in elective deliveries before 39 weeks is a quality measure for insurance companies. Mm-hmm. So you're getting it from different payers mm-hmm. uh, more than a national push. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's costing a lot of money. These elective, these elective well, yeah, C-sections. These, I'm sorry, these, why there isn't some kind of a campaign saying, well, you know, they, nature knows what it's doing. Let it take its I mean, course. this is bound to be. This is bound to be. You know, it costs us a huge issue. Um, if you are having more C-sections. More, you know, morbidity and even mortality in babies from if you're having, you know, prolonged breastfeeding difficulties, you've got people staying in the hospital longer and it's just driving costs up. So the people who are who care about, you know, in hospital costs are bound to be on board with this. Mm-hmm. Well, not only I'm also mm-hmm. thinking, you know, everybody's turning we turn ourselves inside out to make our children as bright and stimulated mm-hmm. as they can be. But it seems that you give them such a leg up by just letting them stay in utero as long as they need to. Yeah, doing less, doing less is doing more around this. Doing less is doing more for the baby. Um, that's pretty. That's pretty obvious. And again, when we're talking about healthy babies in their moms, and you know, without medical indication to, that the pregnancy needs to be brought to an end. You know, mm-hmm. more was this soon. something that was happening on a, and I'm sorry if we already answered this, but for some reason it's come back around in my head. Was this something that was happening on a very high percentage? Uh, what percentage, uh, maybe at its peak, were people just scheduling um, induced labors out of convenience? Do we have any data on um, that? I don't have it with me. I mean, I have Bloomington data mm-hmm. since we've been looking at it for the for greater than five years. Mm-hmm. But I, I can't give you that data without having it in front of me. Mm-hmm. But, but certainly across the country, and there's lots of national data out there that it peaked. We're actually seeing um, the early term births go down in Indiana. The statistical data that we're getting from the birth certificates is always a couple years behind, but mm-hmm. we're seeing progress across the street. Mm-hmm. I'm very proud of, of what the state's doing. The Indiana Perinatal Network is, is a group in Indiana that anyone who's interested in perinatal care uh, really needs to investigate. Uh, they do a l- great work with with pushing uh, hospitals. They've had perinatal summits twice, inviting all hospitals in Indiana. Both perinatal summits they have encouraged and given toolkits to help um, individuals go back to their communities to decrease elective preterm birth. So th- that organization, from a state perspective, has been absolutely awesome to help hospitals with the different resource issues that they have. Mm-hmm. 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 Jeff had that great stat early that is probably worth repeating yeah. about the rise in the, the induction The stat was that between nine, 1996 and 2007, the incidence of uh, elective C-sections went up 53%. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. So and it was that pushed it to about thirty two percent, almost a third. Mm-hmm. Of the that's 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 a yeah. big change in a short time. That's a real yeah. changing yeah. birthing yeah. culture. Wait a minute, yeah. hold on. I did not grasp this earlier. A third of all at that time yeah. births at that time were by C section. Not all elective, but, but yeah. mm. not yeah. all elective. I mean, our national right. C section rate. I knew about okay. I knew yeah. about yeah. the C section, but okay. So those were, okay. All right. I yeah. Well, I mean, getting the C section rate down is a. a Big, you know, priority, and, and there's just a huge need for it. It's way out of proportion from what it, what would be ideal. And people argue about what's like a perfect C-section rate, but it's at least half of what it is now. Yeah. So we've got to get it way, way like down. Fifteen percent. Fifteen would be, would be yeah. Fifteen would be amazing. I don't know. It's been a bajillion years since it was fifteen percent. But yeah. well, we're looking at our, our, ourselves nationally. Uh, mm-hmm. As even though we may be improving a lot mm-hmm. locally, which is wonderful. Yeah, um, it's huge. Our <laughs> national things that I'm most aware of. Our national mm-hmm. prematurity rate. Mm-hmm. 
uh, is 12.5% yeah. and rising, not hmm. decreasing, yeah. not holding steady. We're not doing well compared to the rest of the mm-hmm. industrial world, and we're on the wrong the, the curve is I, I think the way. March of Dimes gives the United States a D in productivity. Yeah, that's right. mm-hmm. And actually, I have some data there. I guess uh, Indiana got a D in 2010 and then raised it to a C in 2011. I'm not sure if the 2012 numbers have been released. Probably not. And Probably not. To yeah. put it in context, in Sweden, the premature the yeah the premature births are less than half. It's five and a half percent. Wow. Mm-hmm. Here's a comment that came in online. It says, any recommendations for what moms can do in the last days and weeks of pregnancy to be less physically and emotionally uncomfortable? <laughs> <laughs> um, stay, away from, stay away from negative messages from Send sometimes your, your dear grandparents. <laughs> <laughs> That's, you know, it's so, it's really challenging to be that woman in yeah. that space. And it's really important to keep things quiet. Women usually want to, um, they're usually drawing within themselves. And it's important to not have to feel like you're defending yourself against, you know, grandma who just can't wait for this baby yeah. and, you know, fending off everyone else's eagerness. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the, and, you know our, our, our culture just nationally does not do a good job talking to pregnant women. We ask them stupid questions like, when are you going to have that baby? And, you know, are you going to have twins? You know, just things that are so unhelpful and, you know, so lacking in compassion. It's kind of shocking all the time. Um, I would say um, some, you know, some, some pleasant distraction and some, and, you know, feel free to isolate yourself. It's great to be sexual if you feel like it. Get, keep the oxytocin flowing. Oxytocin levels are higher at night. I should have mentioned that earlier when we talked about labor beginning or labor progressing mm-hmm. in yeah. the night. Um, it is, you know, keep things peaceful and quiet. Make what you might think of but as selfish choices, which are absolutely not selfish choices, about who you let be around you. Who and you let be. the time with mm-hmm. the baby. Yeah. yeah, this is the last of a, a great event that you're going to have, and you may or may not have it ever happen again in your life. Mm-hmm. So enjoy just taking time and being by yourself mm-hmm. and massaging your tummy and talking to your baby and and just connecting with the baby and just take time between the two because it's not when it's done it's done mm-hmm. and you have a lot of opportunity the last few weeks just to enjoy the, the pregnancy mm-hmm. we are out of time oh shoot <laughs> <laughs> this was fun thank you so much for inviting us we're so happy to have all of you here jeff alberts dana waters mary helen harris thanks for being back with us we always thanks. enjoy having thank mary you. Helen here for Mary Catherine Carmichael, producers Gretchen Frazee and Julie Raw, and engineer Mike Pashkash, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net.